welcome to Season 2, Episode 2 of Art Lives. My name is Elizabeth de la Mater, and on this podcast, I talk with artists one-on-one about their art, their lives, and how they navigate the world. This episode features Carla Houston, who was the Poet Laureate of Wisconsin from 2017 through 2018. Carla tells us what it means to be a Poet Laureate, how her roles as an artist and an educator have informed each other, and what it means to be a responsible member of an artistic community. At the end of the interview, we will hear Carla read one of her award-winning poems. Here is Carla Houston. I, um, you know, I had four years of English, and it was called English. Right. (laughs) And, and, you know, I was, um, at that time, they used to do testing, and they would put kids into sections, and I was put into the A section, and my teacher at the time um, said, she hoisted up her boobs like this and said, every one of you will go on to college and become somebody. And do and do wonderful things, and I'm kind of looking around the room, thinking, "Who?" Because <laughs> I never, I never thought I would go to college. I had really, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Okay, but I ne- that idea was so totally foreign to me that I, I never expected it. And it was a teacher. It was That's a teacher, neat. which is which is probably why I um, became an English teacher. Okay, and the really odd thing is that when I was taking my methods class um, at UW Oshkosh with a teacher, her name is Joan Horsch, I'm sure she's retired, but she started talking about the old battle axe English teacher that she had for methods when she was getting her teaching degree, and it was my high school English teacher. Wow. Who used to teach you know methods class at UW-La Crosse. So it's like the old battle axe, but I mean, I loved her. Yeah. There was nothing I wouldn't do for her. Right. Right. She put this idea in my head. Wow. So. Did you ever go back and tell her? Um, I kept in touch with her quite often until she um, was, uh, I think she had memory loss and she finally died. But she was 86 years old when she was still working on the farm in um, Fountain City. Incredible. So, yeah, she that's what she did during the summer is go out and, and she was a big woman. Yeah. You know, with the little waves like this and a yep. little bun. Mm-hmm. And the really freaky thing is that my uncle had her as, as a high school okay. teacher. Okay, so here, yeah. And my dad had her yeah. and his brothers and sister. And then she got down to the next generation and <laughs> I think she was looking at me with suspicion. Not <laughs> another one. <laughs> So probably one of those great teachers with like a 50 or 60 year career. Oh yeah, at yeah. least that. Yeah, at Incredible. least that. Hmm. So, um, but that's the reason I became an English teacher. And, um, you know, I went back to school when I was maybe 42. Oh, okay. So um, I got my degree when I was 45. So do you mind tracing a little bit? You went to lacrosse first. I went to lacrosse for mm-hmm. three semesters, got married. Yeah, moved to California, or I should say moved to California, got married, moved back to La Crosse in about 1971 when my husband went back to school. He got out of the Navy and he went back to school. And at that time I was working for a department store in La Crosse called Dorflingers. Yes. And there was not enough money for both of us to go to school. And right. once again, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Sure. So I worked um, at for Dorflingers for 13 years. Huh. And I started there as a sales girl on the second floor ladies' fashions Mm -hmm. that sold clothing to little old ladies and their mothers. (laughs) I was 21 or 22. And so I managed over that course of the years to be the buyer for that department and six other ladies' departments for the company and then four other stores. So I thought, well, I could go back and get a marketing degree. Sure. But then someone else would have my job. Right. So so then kids came along, mm-hmm. and um, we moved to Oklahoma City for about two years. And then we moved back to Appleton. Huh. And um, I should say we moved to Appleton 
Um, so then it was computer mom, Girl Scout leader, you know, <laughs> yep, all of the things. Yeah, and I did um, decorative painting, taught painting classes. Oh, I, I thought that I read, yeah. Yeah, and then my husband says, why don't you go back to school? Amazing. And I said, we can't afford it. He said, we'll, we'll figure it out. Uh-huh. So I did. And that's when you went to Oshkosh. That's when I went to Oshkosh. Right. I was a transfer student, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had I had a math class that they couldn't verify. So <laughs> I said, why don't you come in here? We'll just test you. Oh. And, you know, I said, you know, I knew about X's and Y's, but I have no idea what those N's and the other things mean. So... So I called UW Oshkosh, and they actually had a syllabus. Hey. Yeah. Very smart. Yeah, they actually had a syllabus, so it's like, yay. Yeah. See, that's what being a non-traditional, quote-unquote, student is. Mm -hmm. You're smart enough to do things like that. Yeah, well, I I thought, well, I'm going to have to take a math class or kill myself one or the other. But when I left UW-La Crosse, I had already um, registered for the School of Education. Oh, okay. And so, you know, 20-some years later, I finally went back and um, got that degree that I thought I wanted then. And, you know, I've never been sorry about it, Mm -hmm. but um, it was an eye-opening experience going back to school at 40 years old. Hmm. First of all, I wasn't there to party. Right. And I was the person in the front row. Yes. who had actually did her homework because it was so expensive. And, yes. you know, I had, I mean, I had to. Yes. So um, the hard part was getting the master's degree because there weren't enough classes offered. It, it, there, yes. So I had to be very creative with a couple of college professors that I had that I liked a lot. Okay. So um, I managed to get that done Um I don't know, six or seven years after I started teaching. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to do anything when you're teaching, first-year teacher. Nope. Mm-hmm. And trying to, you know, create curriculum and grade papers. And English teachers are always creating papers. And, and then they want you to get the continuing ed credits, and then they yeah. want you to get a master's. And Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, but the, the classes that I was taking were considered continuing ed credits, so that Good. worked out. Okay. But, you know, if you would have um, asked me, you know, like I said, that 16-year-old person that I was, what I was going to do, and, you know, I wanted to go to California. You know, we're, well, yeah, 1966, sure. I wanted to be cool. I had long, blonde, iron oh, hair. And, nice. <laughs> and anyway, um, so I um, was curious about writing. I, my undergrad, I had wanted a writing emphasis, so I tried to take as many classes as I could, but okay. I was never allowed, or I could never fit in any creative writing classes. Oh. So, long story long, I was offered a job at Nina mm-hmm. High School full-time, yep. and I had uh, two or three weeks before school started, the um, department chair called and asked if I wanted to teach creative writing, and I said, well, yes. He said, do you have any experience in that? And I said, well, no, <laughs> but I'll figure it out. <laughs> so that's kind of where it started. I started doing okay. my student assignments, and then I started taking classes, and <sighs> then it just everything kind of blew up from there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I started writing short fiction, but when I figured I could do as much in 36 lines of poetry, why write fiction? Too many words. So is is that what it was for you? It wasn't that you already that that all along poetry has been your personal medium. It was you just wanted to write creatively, and then you ended up narrowing in on poetry. Right. Yes. Yes. Okay. Because you know, other than Shakespeare in high school, which I loved, mm. I never really had very much experience with poetry. Okay. And I don't know if it's because my old battle axe teacher never brought it into the classroom or if I don't remember it. Right. But I always thought that poetry had this kind of secret message in it that only smart people could understand, and I was not one of those people. So... (laughs) You know, there's a, a Nina resident, Laurel Mills. She writes fiction and write, and writes poetry, and now she's painting. Very talented woman. Mm-hmm. But she offered a um, continuing education class at the Tech. 
Okay. Um, no, not the tech. I'm sorry, UW Fox. So I signed up for that. Great. So I came in with my little short story, and we did little in-class writing prompts. And I thought I was going to pass out when I was asked to share something. <laughs> I mean, literally, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going down. Yeah. But yeah. she brought in contemporary poetry. Oh, okay. And that was the, all the difference in the world to me because right. I understood it. Yep. And I, I always tell people, if you are unfamiliar with poetry, read contemporary poetry and then work your way back. Yeah. Because poetry is not easy when you're not a, a good reader. So right. start with something that's, you know, familiar topics and more conversational language mm -hmm. and then work your way back to the hard stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I you know, guarantee you'll love it because there's something out there for everybody. Yes. So, I mean, that's kind of was my education in it, and I had to go and find out for myself. I was gifted a large book of Robert Frost's poetry when I was young, and I didn't know what the words meant in them, mm -hmm. which for me then equaled Shakespeare. So I mm -hmm. kind of had a similar experience for a while. Um, yeah, so, so this is all while you were teaching. Yes. And then did you start to write, I I encountered your work as a poet, and when I first, I believe I saw you at a poetry reading, and you were introduced as a poet. When did do you think of yourself as a poet now? Um, yes, okay. I do, I do, and whenever I have a student, I, I like to teach adult classes. And whenever I have an adult student say, "I'm no poet," and I said, "You just wrote a poem." <laughs> You're a poet. Okay. <laughs> Stop not calling yourself a poet. But somebody told me that a long, long time ago. Uh -huh. And I thought, well, I guess I am. Oh. I guess I am. I, I think it's probably like that time or two I got up to read and said, I've never done this before and I'm scared to death. And it's just, Ellen Court said, just knock that off. <laughs> she just said, you know what you're that. doing. That's great. <laughs> She said, we've heard that story before, so just read your poems. <laughs> yeah, that's boring. Okay, so, so uh, that then leads to my next question, which is when, when was that? When did you say, okay, I am a poet? Um, I would probably say maybe around 1997, 96, 97 which is probably a pretty ballsy comment for someone who didn't write her first poem until, you know, 1994. But I had been writing a lot. I yeah. mean, at that time, when you're just new to it, everything is a poem. I would look at this oh, microphone yes. and go home and go, okay, what is it about that microphone that I could say? Sure. And um, now I think I've lost some of that spark I think I know that not everything deserves to be put into a poem. But if you're if you're good at it, yeah. then I guess why not? Hmm. I guess why not? So But about that time I suppose I probably considered myself a poet. I was okay. active in the community, going to readings, trying to be a good literary citizen, um reading as much as I could, bringing poetry um the real world of poetry to my high school students about you know how you know how how it's done yeah you know and not just putting thoughts and feelings on a page uh -huh. but creating art because in the end poets are creating art what is what is a good literary citizen a good literary citizen is someone who goes to readings mm -hmm. gets up and shares what they have written if the opportunity arises does not show up five minutes before the open mic and leaves when they're finished. Doesn't show up with six poems because they were not there when the moderator said two, please. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay, okay. I'm just going to read one more. Is that okay? Right. A good literary citizen buys books. Yes. You know, if someone has a new book, out comes my money because yes, I want them to buy my books some at some point. But sure. it's so gratifying to have a book in hand when someone says, "I'd like to buy that from yes. you." Yes. So good literary citizen, um, you know, shows up, joins mm -hmm. the conversation. How do you? How did you learn? How did you learn that? Uh, 
second nature. Okay. I, my old battle axe high school English teacher told us about the importance of writing thank you notes. Right. So yes. I just think that it's just only fair if I expect people to come and listen to me read that I should do the same. Yeah. And that I should understand that I come there at the beginning and stay till the end. Right. And so everybody has a chance to read. And that, yes, I do buy books and I subscribe to journals. And, um, you know, I give books away to people. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have a perfect book for you about that. That's so neat. And, um, but just, I, it's just that I was brought up during a time period of manners, I guess. So, <laughs> I had t- taken a class some years ago with Ted Kuzer, and he had talked about that. Good manners. Good manners. Will get you very, very far. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone mm-hmm. has accepted poems for a literary journal, you send them a note and say thank you. We have classes in music in college, uh, music, and I'm and I'm pretty sure the art department um, people I've spoken to they you know we we talk about it as professionalism, but really it's manners, mm-hmm. and it's participating um, in your artistic community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you find that uh, does it seem like there? Uh, I'm trying to find a way to word this. Does the does that seem to be second nature among um, younger writers? Uh, no. Okay. I don't think it does. Um, I, and I think, and I, you know, I've got to give them a lot of leeway there. I think yes. a lot of them, especially really young writers, are scared, and they yes. they get up. You know, if you're participating in an orchestra, you're one among many. But when you're standing up there in front of a group of people, most of them looking about my age with their knees, legs crossed, and you get up there and you're reading this poem that you have just thrown everything that you know into, and you get up there and read, and it's like, shoot, this is scary. Oh my this goodness. is really scary. But it, it shouldn't be. And, um, you know, we do this monthly uh, Poetry Unlock series at the Draw. And it's wonderful when new writers get up and read. And they are welcomed and encouraged mm-hmm. to come back. Everybody goes up to them after and says, oh, I love that. And yeah. they're really, really encouraged. But I think people are scared that they've done something wrong or that someone will be able to guess, like me. Try reading my first piece at that class I took, mm-hmm. that someone will be able to tell by what I had written about my secret awful self. <laughs> they're going to go, oh, yes, oh. <laughs> yes, they're going to find out the truth. Exactly, exactly, and no one wants that. <laughs> That's scary, though. But um, you know, as far as uh, you know, I I talk to my students about that. Okay, you know about coming to readings. I encourage them them to go, but not yeah. many of them did. Yeah. They're always so busy, but I said, you, right. you know, you come and listen mm-hmm. and you might be surprised. Mm-hmm. And you might have a few ideas when you go home of your own. Mm. So, the that seems like a, a completely separate performative uh thing that shouldn't have to be such a big part of it. You um there are people who study how to perform monologues, and so, uh, and there are people who study how to write music, and people who study how to perform music. So why should writers and poets have to get up and perform their own work so much? Well, poetry should be heard. Aha! You know, fiction. Eh, I, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not a good listener when it comes to fiction. I'm yeah. kind of waiting there for the last line so I can go. Oh. <laughs> But poetry should be heard. Okay. And there are some um, wonderful, uh, well, Fox Valley is lousy with good poets. Yeah. There are some wonderful uh, performance poets statewide. Mm -hmm. Um, A year or so ago, I had, um, or I should say the book festival brought up four Milwaukee poets who are performance poets, and um, they are extraordinary. I mean, the rest of us who don't know anything about spoken word should take a lesson. But um, there's Nathan Reed from um, Madison who just, Mm -hmm. have you heard him? I've heard of him, yeah. Yeah, just mind-boggling because he performs it. Nothing, no sheet of paper in front of him. Mm. He has it memorized 
which is something I couldn't do. But there's a connection yeah. between audience and reader that uh, when you're a skilled reader, you make that connection with the audience. Right. Um, several years ago, a group of us went to hear Robert Creeley at Lawrence be- shortly, a month or two before he died. Hmm. And you, it's always interesting to listen to the stories of the greats about how this poem evolved. Mm-hmm. But you never knew where the story ended and his poem began. Oh, So nice. we would listen to him, we'd just go, was that the poem? Because <laughs> <laughs> we right. weren't sure. You know, we weren't sure because I, I, with a great deal of respect for him as a poet, but I just don't think he was a very skilled reader. Okay. Or maybe, again, maybe he was nervous. Right. Maybe maybe he had a stomach ache or or maybe he was tired, but it was really, he didn't let you know. And now this is the poem that I've been talking about. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. No no space and then presentation. Right. My husband tells me that I'm guilty, and I try to be aware of this, but there's that dead space after you finish with a poem that I really am always in a hurry to fill up with the next right. one. Yes. And he yeah. says, you just got to wait a minute and yeah. let people right. absorb, absorb what you've said. Mm-hmm. And of course he's right. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when I'm standing up there, it's like, how much more time do I have and all and then, then I jump right into the next poem, which is a, really a disservice to the listeners. So I'm working on it. Time goes a lot faster when you everybody's looking at you. Yes. And so you you know it might have been two seconds, but for for us it's like ten. It feels like ten seconds have gone by. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you're right about that time thing when you're yeah. reading or performing. It's just like it seems like it's either going by really fast or really, really slowly. Right. So there's nothing worse than a room full of people listening to you and you read a poem and you get no reaction at all and just go, oh, maybe I shouldn't have read that one. Right. <laughs> but anyway, it usually works out all right. Good. So um, when you, uh, well, you've won of a few awards. And I learned about you through a mutual friend, but many people learned about you a couple years ago when you became the Poet Laureate of the state of Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. Um, What, for you, what is it like when you win an award like that? Is that, for you, uh, um, okay, well, can you just tell me how you found that out? Uh, that I was the Poet Laureate. Yes. You I actually got an email from the chair of the Poet Laureate Commission because he didn't have my telephone number, although it was on the application. I, you know, I knew that they were really struggling with making choices. Yeah. And, um, and I understood that because you want to represent the state of Wisconsin. Sure. So I was one of the three finalists, and uh, he sent me an email, and of course I was hopping up and down and running around the, <laughs> the room in the house. What? <laughs> so I was, I was um, surprised initially, very surprised, and because I know that Wisconsin has lots and lots of fine poets who appeal to lots and lots of different kinds of people. Mm-hmm. And um, I also was very honored you know, to carry that mantle for two years. I always try to remember that when I packed up my stuff to go someplace, Mm -hmm. that it's an honor and it's not all about me. (laughs) You know, I worked with the, you know, elderly community and, and at memory cafes all over the state. And for those moments, it was about them. Right. When I taught, worked with high schools or elementary school students, it was about them. Right. You know, so it was... A wonderful enabling experience, mm-hmm. and um, such wonderful people who sneak out of, you know, strange places. You know, Washburn, Wisconsin. Although I do know a really good poet up there, but you know, Wash and Ladysmith and Bayfield, and it's like this place. The state is lousy with poets. Yes, people who come out. Yeah, and um, I think a lot of people are curious about it. Aha. Uh-huh. And I think they're curious about um, the poetry they know versus the poetry that I am maybe reading. Okay. 
um, because a lot of people expect poems to rhyme. Still, okay. Still, yeah, still. And a lot of people, I've had some good natured discussions with people about oh. that. And um, but a lot of people still do, yes, mm-hmm. especially for our elders, because they're from that generation of students who memorize poems when they were in school. Yes, right. And rhyming it makes poems much easier to memorize. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, they were curious about it uh, and asked me many times about that. Um, why don't they rhyme anymore? What do you say? Well, I say they some do. There okay. are still some poets who are invested in writing in rhyme and form, mm-hmm. and I always say, bravo for them. Mm-hmm. I can't do it because my brain doesn't think that way. <laughs> but, um, I, but I said the rhymes are fresh and new, and their ideas are fresh and new, and they're not using moon, june, spoon rhymes or tears falling like rain. Right. And um, so... To me, dealing with that structure and then trying to write within that structure I, it doesn't work for me, but it does work well for a lot of poets, sure. wonderful poets. But you know, I said, you know, Edgar Allan Poe was a fine short story writer and novelist. He couldn't get a day job now. True. <laughs> Nobody writes like that anymore. <laughs> so things change. Yeah. You know, we don't ride in horse and buggies anymore. We use vehicles. Not that there's anything wrong with the horse and buggy, but things change. Right. Yeah, and who knows, you know, what the you know situation will look like in ten years. Mm-hmm. So you, you, what other conversations did you have with people, and you traveled around? Um, they many people wanted to know how I became poet laureate, mm. and um, you know what I did. Okay. And um, as poet laureate, or how to get in touch with me. But a lot of times we talked about um, memory. I always like to start out with, uh, especially working with elders mm-hmm. and in that community, is um, do you recall the first thing you remember? And that's always a great writing prompt. Just try to close your eyes and go all the way back oh. to the very first memory. Huh. And then, you know, if it's a workshop, then we write about that, our first memory. And many people will say they were surprised about what came up. And then I will always come back because that's just me. How do you know that memory is true? Amazing. You know, how do you know that memory is true? Or is it something that's been talked about for so long that it becomes the memory? Right. Um, Marge Piercy, a poet from Michigan, wrote uh, something about um, memory and memoir as a revisionist. Because we may be throwing it all out there, but we're still choosing what to share and what not to share. Yes. As so, and our memories, we revise them to suit our fancy. You know, do you remember fourth grade, what you got for Christmas? Or what happened on that occasion? And what about a sibling? Would they agree with you? Oh, no, they will tell us something different. Yes. Because we choose what we keep in our memory based on you know, looking through our own lenses, what it meant to us, mm-hmm. and not taking into account anybody else mm-hmm. but us. Mm-hmm. So that's why memories don't always come out as true. Mm-hmm. They may come out as maybe true, or as mm-hmm. Stephen Dunn says, approximately true. Yes, yes. So that's always a fun conversation because people will start talking about that and saying, oh, I never, never thought that, yes, it was something that was talked about in the family. Right. But maybe I never saw it or maybe, yeah. Or or have you asked anybody in the family if that ever happened? And as some people have said, yes, you know, that that it did and that I remember it. So it's weird. Hmm. Um, were have, was that or were, were any are there any prizes are there any uh, specific accomplishments that you have hoped for or aimed for as a poet? Um, well, when I started writing poetry, we didn't have a poet laureate, so that wasn't aimed for. But I guess getting writing that really really good poem that will take an editor to his or her knees and say, I must publish this. Because we all want to write the poem that is so meaningful to so many people. 
but I don't think most of us ever achieve that. But I don't think also that we are, are ever going to stop trying. I don't think when Robert Frost wrote Stopping by the Woods on a Snowy Evening said, I'm going to write the poem of all times. Right. And he just wrote a poem, and then what happened with it happened with it. You know, that's maybe the onus of the reader. But, um, you know, I have always been very happy when I published a small book of poems mm -hmm. and was very happy when my collection was picked up. And I was very happy when the last small book of poems that I had won lots of awards that I wasn't expecting to win. Sure. But I look at it as, okay, that's great, but what have you done lately? Sure. You know, what have you done lately? So, you know, I've got a manuscript in draft form right okay. now. So I think about it and I keep looking at it. One day I hate it. The next day I really <laughs> like it. I'm so happy to hear you say that. <laughs> You really, because you know, then you think what, where I'm at right now is I need to go back and work on some of these poems because I think they can be better poems. When you're ready to send away a poem, how, how do you know it's how do you know it's done? How do you know you're ready to send it away? Well, you're just lucky I didn't take that poem right there and cross out a few things because I, I was tempted. Okay, you gave me this. I, I'm going to spend so much more time with it, but you gave me this beautiful poem you wrote. Um, when did you write this? Um, uh, probably maybe when I was maybe 50. So a little while ago. Yeah. And But now you say you there's part of you that wants to edit it. Yes. So it's uh, this is something with um, a lot of artists. How do you how do you look at old work and let it be? Be oh. Well, if it's a poem that I'm very pleased with and happy with, I usually let it be. But that poem was written so long ago, hmm. I'm not the same person I am as when I wrote it then. Sure, sure. And so there's that temp temptation to go in and want to scribble something out. Mm -hmm. And I think that that can be useful. Okay. You know, um, I with my adult students, when they write something, you know, I say, put it in a drawer for a couple of weeks, couple of months, couple of years. If you're not sure what to do with it, put it aside for a while because time is your best friend when it comes uh -huh. to writing because you'll look at that over and over and then one day the muse will give you a little gift and you'll know what to do with it. That's wonderful. And so you're also, as I said, I'm not the same person as I was when I wrote that. Right. Wasn't the same time period in my life, but mm -hmm. for the most part with those old poems, I just let them be. And how do you, you were talking about uh, just always continuing to, to write another poem that will reach people. So how do you, how do you personally um, feel about all of those poems of yours out in the world? Are you able to let them go and say, fly free? Or I think I have to because they're yeah. out there. Yeah. Yes. You know, if I've, if I've put it in, in an envelope to mm -hmm. be published someplace, mm -hmm. I want them to go out into the world. Yeah. There are poems that I've written over the years, and I, I'm sure we all have, where you would just write it and say, okay, I said that now, Yeah. I'm moving on. Okay. And those are poems that I would not put out into the world. But okay. if, I, if I send it out to be published mm -hmm. or submit it to a contest, then I'm going to expect it's going to be out there. Mm -hmm. And I may expect to get someone who's not going to like it, or I may expect someone who's going to be crazy about it. I'm always surprised when it shows up on somebody's blog, because they, ne they first of all, didn't get permission. <laughs> well, there's that. Yeah, I was going to say, wait. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but I, you know, I just kind of let him go. Yeah. So it is what it is. It was written at that time period in my life. And um, I just want to push on and you know write the next poem. You mentioned that it feels vulnerable to stand and read a poem. Mm -hmm. Did it take you a while to be okay with also sending your poems away? To be yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, I think so. But there is no finer experience in your life than to see a print publication with uh. something that you've written in it. Mm -hmm. 
and especially the first few times you publish something and it's just cool. like oh my god they liked me cool it's a sally field moment <laughs> yeah right yeah <laughs> but now um you know i think the biggest thing is trying to keep track of where things are oh because okay. i've had a couple of embarrassing moments where i've submitted something and then realized later it had been published someplace else uh-huh. So that's the part of writing um, and being an artist is the business part of it. You've got to keep the records and you've got to keep track of where things are right. and when it was published and where. Wow. Um, in case it shows up in an anthology and they need to get permission to republish it. Yes. And so it's a very different mindset. Yes. Sometimes I get a little lax. Well, I can imagine. Yeah. There are so many um, non-creative details. Right. And I think with a lot of artists, there are non-creative details that go with it. I mean, I, I remember years ago when I was a student at UW, um, oh, I was in journalism classes, and I did um, some articles for Marketplace magazine, which I think is now defunct. But I interviewed a couple of art consultants in the Valley, hmm. and um, I don't even remember their names. Yeah. but. I didn't even know what an art consultant was. Sure. And so these were, um, they were women, but they were art consultants for paintings. Ah. So, you know, that kind of, that artist is too busy with the creative part of it to go to the trouble of getting their art placed someplace or sold someplace. So art consultants step in. They're like agents, I guess, for the artists and step in and help them with that process. That would be nice. Yeah, and and I'd never thought about that, that that would be a necessary thing. Sure. Until I talked to these two women. Hmm. Sure. What do you say to a young person who has uh, perhaps an attitude like like you did, or or doesn't know uh, doesn't know of poetry as a as a contemporary living thing? What is your what is your pitch? Well, of course, it's going to be read some. <laughs> you know, again, not words. to not to go back um, to my high school teaching, but you know, I had lots of kids in my creative writing class. Some who were writers, and some who were not. Yeah. Because I thought this would be the easy grade. If it's creative, you can't grade it. But I, I, at least the goal that I had for them was that even the fiction writers who went moaning and groaning into the poetry unit, give it a chance. Right. And I hope I have succeeded when you graduate and someday pick up a book and say, oh, it's poetry. (laughs) And stop and read the poem that's in front of you, knowing that it's not going to bite you and you don't have to be afraid of it. And so that it'll always find a place and that you'll stop and read poems when you see them mm-hmm. because you found out that you maybe actually like some of them. You're not going to like them all. It's right. like escargot. <laughs> I don't like escargot, but I have nothing, no problem with it if you do. <laughs> right. That's a pretty big goal, actually. That's, that is a lot. If, can you, would you, mind, would you bother reading it? Would you recognize it and read it in the future? Yeah, yeah. You know, did at least not be afraid of it and show sure. uh poetry and close the book. Like go, oh, I remember poetry from that mean old teacher that I had. <laughs> but um, anyway, so that would be my goal, and just to try uh-huh. it. Um, and well, you know, people will say, well, I don't find anything that I like. And yeah. I'll say, but go to the library. Yeah. Eight oh eight point eight, and just park yourself on the floor. And start mm. pulling books off of the shelf. Sure. And then look through, and if you find two or three poems that you like, take that book home with you. And um, or if you don't like it, put it back. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're not going to like everything you read, and that's okay. But you will find something that you will like. That's true. You can almost guarantee it that you will find something. Mm-hmm. What is uh, what is your um, I, I guess. Practice. What is your practice now for writing? Um, right now, I'm not doing a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. I've got a puppy at home. Oh, and well, yes. That's... <laughs> and my husband is going through some health issues. 
So, but I will be going to a couple of writers' retreats in the future, and I'm really looking forward to that mm -hmm. because that gives me unlimited time. Right. And so I don't have to worry about letting the dog out or taking him for a walk. Yes. And um, and I'm not distracted by the world around mm -hmm. me. But when I get stuck and need something to write, I pull out a book. Okay. And I still read a lot of poetry, though I'm not really writing all that much myself. But um, I get someone else's poetry yeah. out, and there's usually something in there that will send me to my pen and page. Hmm. And um, and often, if I don't know how to end a poem, mm -hmm. I will go to my favorite author and see oh. how she does it. Oh. And I'm not copying them, but I get right. an idea what, yep. they're, what they're doing to pull that poem to a close. So right. um, Billy Collins always said that he writes out of jealousy. <laughs> I've heard him say this more than once. You know, I can do that. I do a better job than that. And then he sits, sits down to do it. I write out of envy. Like, oh, I want to write a poem like that so badly. Uh, uh, here, let me try. Nice. <laughs> and you're not going to get there unless you put your pen down to, you know, a page. Mm -hmm. And I, I was used to say writer's block was nonsense, although... I've been guilty of, you know, writing something and then getting to a point where I say, all right, so now what? Uh -huh. And sometimes I'll just let that sit and then I'll come back later with the now what. But, you know, I think yeah. that, you know, pens are kind of magical and you can't have writer's block for long. If you sit down and write 50 times, I have writer's block, I have writer's block, oh. I have writer's block. Eventually you won't have writer's block and you'll start saying something. And also to realize that everything, not everything you write is going to be good. And you can accept that? <laughs> you have to write, you have to, you know, you have to write and revise yeah. and, you know, you, it's work. You know, poets, poetry is not magical. It doesn't just magically appear on your page. You have to work at it. You have to revise it and you have to stop and think about it and, you know, consider should I have told it from this point of view or that? Or should I have started with this, you know, first instead of this first? Mm -hmm. And we get in this habit, um, and new writers, I see it too, and I'm sure fiction writers are guilty of it as well, is you start out with this scaffold. Mm -hmm. I want to write about the day I skin my knee mm -hmm. on roller skates. So we started out with it was a warm summer day, about 8.30 at night, and mosquitoes were out. And that's your scaffold okay. to get you going to the moment yeah. when you're flying across these uh, cement blocks that look like chipped teeth. And when you start to revise, you take that scaffold out. Got it. You've got to have, you may have to have it there right. to get started. But then when you're done, if you can see it, then take it out of there because it probably doesn't belong there. You, did you learn all of this? Did you learn, learn that it's work? Did you learn that you have to be patient or did you, is this the kind of person you are? Um, I think I learned it. Uh huh. Um, I've had more than one person tell me this okay and I probably have not articulated it before but I've had more than one person say to me that it, you're the kind of person is who if you don't know you will find out Aha. you'll figure it out and um, you know I've had a lot of classes in writing poetry and I've taken workshops and classes from a lot of poets I love craft books so I read a lot of those yeah but you just learn you just kind of absorb it right and um, it becomes, you know, in, it's in your system. Right. You know, like reading uh, fiction will help you learn to write fiction. Yes. Because you, you, in, you in, uh, internalize that structure. Yes. And those sentences and those vocabulary words. Yeah, you must uh, absorb and, and not intake. You must absorb the art that you want to make. You must um, ingest other yeah. other art you do let them yeah. let them influence you please <laughs> and and but i i guess i learned that because i what i loved poetry still love poetry i was teaching poetry so uh -huh. i wanted to be a, an example for my students although the class was always about their poetry mm -hmm. and maybe at the end of the semester i would read one of my poems mm. but they would see me writing with them 
Okay. And they would just say, wait a minute, I got to get this down. And then, then I could, you know, I could say, okay, what, what do you need? But they, I want them to see me as an active working writer, right. not just as a teacher who's yep. teaching poetry, but a, a teacher who writes poetry. And so, um, but I, you know, looked at them with, you know, this, I look at my poems with the same way I looked at theirs. Does this work? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know. So then I set it aside or I asked somebody. Will you, you know, will you look at this, please, and tell me what I can live without in this poem? Because mm-hmm. sometimes, first of all, if you haven't written a poem for a while and you write one, you're just kind of going, yippee, 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 <laughs> happy dance all around the room. And then you go back and sit down and go, the next day you say, oh, my gosh, what was I thinking? <laughs> and then the real work begins. And then the consideration begins, and you have to start thinking about, um, you know, what especially when I get stuck with the so what moment. Mm-hmm. Why did I have to write this? Why did oh. I think this was important to write? Okay. And that sometimes can get me unstuck from the so what moment. Mm-hmm. Or is there something else in here that's actually the poem and the rest of it can go away and I can take this little kernel here and expand on that. Sure. So um, it takes, it's a lot of thoughtful, you know, revision mm-hmm. and, you know, I read widely. So I think, you know, have I seen a poem like that? That, and what did this poet do to get to where she went or he went? So who is your favorite poet? Um, oh, there are so many. Okay. There are so many of them, but probably my most favorite most favorite poet is Dorian Locke's L-A-U-X, and she lives and teaches in um, Raleigh, North Carolina. And um, I encountered her poems when I first started writing. Hmm. And I, first of all, I loved the imagery in her poems. And she taught me more about using sound in poetry almost than anything else. Because it's that internal echoes, the words echoing off of each other and the internal rhythms of the words that she, you know, seemed to, seems to use, and I just sort of I picked up on that, and it started being, you know, I started listening for these things. Yes. For when I was making a word choice, I started listening for these things in my own writing. Right. And she also wrote like a woman. Aha. Uh-huh. She um, wrote about sex. Yeah. She wrote about reta- uh, betrayal. She said swear words in her poems, mm-hmm. and I, you know, wanted to go. Because yeah. <laughs> we're taught to be little ladies, uh, aren't yes. we? <laughs> we're taught to be little ladies, and she still um, boggles my mind. I have her newest book, and um, I uh, sent her a message, and I said, I am just so taken, again, by your poems and the reasons why I love your poetry so much. You know, you learn from those poets that you admire, and um, you learn to read like a, a writer, Nice. And you learn to see how did she enter into this poem and how did she go to here and why and how did she get us back. Yeah, yeah. And um, so you know, I always say, you know, find your favorite writer and read them like a writer, not cool. as a reader, but read. like a writer. Neat. Read like a writer. And I hear all of these uh, terms that you're using about... Um, that you uh, it, about your community and being a citizen, and then you you have this favorite poet, and you actually reach out to her and give her feedback, and um, that uh, that seems so kind. Is the poet community a kind and friendly place? Um, sometimes, sometimes, yeah. I, it, you know, and I've known uh, Dorian for a long time. Um, just because I sent her a letter once a long time ago and okay. she wrote back to me or an email. But, um, you know, sometimes it can be um, not a nice place. Okay. I've been to um, several uh, Associated Writers and Writing Programs conferences, AWP. AWP. And um, there's a sense of desperation oh, yeah. there that's almost palpable mm-hmm. because it's um, college students 
looking for jobs or they're looking for an MFA program and they're looking for somebody to please publish my book. Yes. And um, it's just like, hmm. Yeah. And I've had, you know, talk to people and they say, well, you know, where, where do you teach and do you have a book? Well, I teach high school, and yes, I have a couple of books, and then they turn right around and walk away right. because I'm nobody important, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I don't really care. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, again, that goes back to, you know, the expectation part of it. I think that, or, or maybe the what success um, as a human uh, means to different generations right and there's such a pressure right now right um, but you've st- to you to enable writing and to help the community you uh, you and some other people started a place you created a place in the valley well it's a metaphorical place yes <laughs> yes so can you talk about that uh, the mill a place for writers Yes, I'd be happy to. Um, I, five or six, no, seven or eight years ago, I got an email from this Steve Polanski character. <laughs> and he said, I'd like to meet with you and talk to you for a little bit over coffee. And I wrote back and said, who are you and what do you want? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then he explained a little bit further. Uh-huh. And then we sat down and um, had coffee. And he had for about three or four months been teaching a fiction class writing fiction right and he wanted to add poetry and wondered if I would teach poetry there good with him mm-hmm. and so that's pretty much how it started and um, we're a venue without a venue and um, by the grace of many um, kind citizens and public spaces and mm-hmm. libraries we are still continuing to offer classes nice and um, we have uh, fiction and creative nonfiction and poetry. A couple of poets are now teaching poetry. And uh, Steve has a wonderful class where you don't even have to be a writer. That's so cool. Yeah, his readings for writers classes where you examine two um, popular writers against each other. And oh. you're just, um, I can't remember who is, uh, who, he is, who is juxtaposed together for this summer. But he is uh, really, really smart and I taught for many many years and he knows so much Mm -hmm. I threaten sometimes to take his fiction class but I would only embarrass myself but you know there are so there are classes like that we've offered lectures yeah we've offered um, uh, an occasional free workshop we've offered um, uh, public forums we've Mm -hmm. one of the mill members um, had written a play, so you know it was performed through for a group of people. So we're trying to. It's not only just for writers, but the literary community. Mm-hmm. Once again, we're trying to fill that space of the literary community. We have lovely arts in Appleton. Yes, but there's that you know literary community that needs to be nurtured too. Why is it called the Mill? Uh, I don't know <laughs> because of the paper mill industry. Okay. You know, probably because of that, the, yeah. paper, the paper mill industry. You know, a mill is where you grind grain and you yes. end up with something else, or a paper mm-hmm. mill is where you push pulp through and you end up with something else at the other end, um, perhaps. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Steve asked me if I what I thought of the name. I said, sounds fine to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that has been seven years. Uh, about 2011, yeah. Uh-huh. So Eight seven longer. Um, yeah, a yeah. bit more than seven. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And this summer you have you folks have at least one event a month, two two events a month. Well, we have not necessarily an event, but we offer um, classes on a rotating basis. We finished uh, first part of May um, with spring classes, and then we'll start the 17th of June with some okay. uh, shorter classes. And um, then we'll ramp up again in September. And we may come up with something special for that time period. But we don't want to lose momentum, but we also sure. know that people are busy sure. in the summer. Yes. They are. Right. They've got places to go and things to do. So, yeah. So do you have, you have uh, your own family, and you have your writing, and you have the mill. Um, 
do you have a, now at this point do you feel like you have a good balance with your life and your art do you sometimes wish you had more of one than the other uh, I wish I had more time for my art yeah I really do and I don't think there's an artist out there who would not necessarily yeah. agree with disagree with that mm -hmm. it's just um, uh, my kids are grown up and one lives in Los Angeles and one lives in Brooklyn um, <laughs> Why? <laughs> well, because. yes, yep. <laughs> just yep. because. Yep. I know. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, and you know, we have a pup, and my husband has uh, some health issues right now. But we have a garden, so right now there's all of that that contributes sure. to taking away from time. Mm -hmm. But it also helps to fill that creative well as well. True. Yes. You know, you uh, when I was teaching, I would, you know. Felt like I was so drained of creativity because you used it all up in your classroom. Yeah, and um, but you know there'll there'll be time, mm -hmm. there'll be time. And as I said, I have a couple of writing retreats coming up, which will be right. unlimited amount of time for right. that. But you know, I, I take a little bit of time here and there. Mm -hmm. uh, I still continue to write poetry book reviews for Library Journal, which uh -huh. goes out to national libraries. And so when I get those then I have time to sit down and read. Reading is my best inspiration for what to write about. Um, well I, I would like to talk to you for much longer. Um, would you like to say anything about art or poetry or writing or? Um, I think that art like poetry, and poetry is art, is necessary mm -hmm. to our lives. And it's what makes us human instead of machines mm -hmm. and animals. And it's needed for self-expression. It is also can be part of your lives when your lives are involved with anything. I think of Ted Kuzer, you know, living his life as an insurance underwriter yet he wrote the most marvelous and still continues to write the most marvelous poetry. Hmm. You can write anywhere you want to, any place you want to, any time. All it takes is notebook and pen. Yeah. You don't need a bunch of expensive equipment. You don't need an office. Right. Write it down and um, then create art with it. Um, I don't know about other artists. I am very jealous of my poet friends who are also artists. <laughs> it's like, you know, and I was an art major for one year at UW Lacrosse. <laughs> <laughs> what was I thinking? <laughs> there's time. I, I know that I know they would tell you. <laughs> yeah, there's time. <laughs> I know I can't draw it. Anyway, um, so you know, be involved with it. And I really do think as a community we need to support the arts and involve ourselves in the wonderful things we have here. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the street art, the art in the park, yes. the um, Saturday um, farmer's markets, the trout museum, the bazaar in the dark. And it's not just, you know, written art or, you know, picture art. It's musicians right. and it's uh, sculptors and it's, you know, people creating with beads or making handmade soap. Right. And um, so get out there and enjoy it and then buy something. Support. Yes. Really and truly. <laughs> yeah. 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 We appreciate Actually. what the work they do, you know, support them in a way you can. Absolutely. And because you can't get rich out of compliments. True. Compliments are wonderful and gratifying, but, you know, contribute. True. Contribute. Thank you so much for talking. You're welcome. I hope I didn't get on my pontificating high horse. You can. <laughs> no, I don't want to do that. <laughs> It'll be like that. After the interview, I asked Carla if she would mind reading a poem for the podcast. She chose The Theory of Lipstick, which won a Pushcart Prize in 2011. This poem has probably garnered more attention than any of the other poems that I've written, and it's been published and republished, and um, it's one of those poems that was incredibly fun to write. Nice. And um, I love lipstick, and I could buy all of the lipstick if I could afford to, but I hardly ever wear it. <laughs> Theory of Lipstick. Coral is far more red than her lips red, 
Shakespeare. Pot Rouge, Rouge Pot, Glosser, Lip Pumper, Bee Stung Devil's Candy and Painted Porcelain Fire and Ice, A Vermilion Bullet, Dangerous Beauty Lipstick, Carmine Death Rub, History of Henna. Fact, more men get lip cancer because they don't wear lipstick or butter jumble of a luminous palette with brush made to outlast, last long. Kiss off, you ruby busser. Your gilded rose bud bluster is weapon and wine. Queen Elizabeth's blend, cochineal mixed with egg, gum arabic and fig milk, alizarin crimson and lead. Poison to men who kiss women wearing lipstick, once illegal and loathsome, then cherry jelly bean licked and smeared, then bomb gloss crayon, a cocktail of the mouth, happy hour, lipo hito, lip arita with pout fashion chaser made from fruit pigment and raspberry cream, a luxe of shimmer shine, lipstick glimmer, duo and satin line pouch, clara bow glow, city brilliant and country chick, sparkling, sensual, silks and sangria stains, those radiant tints and beeswax liberty. Oh, kiss me now, O oh double agents of beauty. Slip me essential pencils in various shades of nude and pearl and suede. Oh, bombshell lipstick, sinner and saint, venom and lots of sugar, lip sweet pucker up gelato. Every pink signal is a warning. You have been listening to the Art Lives podcast. I am so grateful to Carla Houston for talking to me. I have posted links to Carla's website, carlahouston.com, on the Art Lives page of my website, elizabethdelamater.com. I have also posted all of the authors and book titles Carla is currently reading. Please rate Art Lives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. More ratings will allow more people to hear us. And finally, special thanks to Bill Salick, Eduardo Moreno, and composer Nicholas Myers. As always, thank you for listening to Art Lives. 